Hi, and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where each week, both Angie and Teresa compulsively start binging any kind of history we can get our hands on that make us giggle, and then we repeat it to the other person and pray that the gods have kept this story from their ears. Or eyes. Or spouses. Or children. If you identify as any of those I don't know. I got nothing after that. Please go. <laughs> yeah, please just just stop. Quit quit saying that we've we've already told you about the Library of Alexandria burning down. We're not over it, and we never will be. <laughs> there are things we will never know because of that. Well, yeah, you're not wrong. So Let's how have you? The distance. Have you been aside from mourning the loss of the Library of Alexandria? <laughs> I mean, isn't that enough? I feel like that's enough. You know. It might be enough, but I mean, it doesn't necessarily play well. With others? Yeah, during your one-on-one with your boss. And they're like, so what? what's going on? Oh, I'm just mourning the loss of the Library of Alexandria. No big. I'm just going to be mourning. To be fair, I actually did have a boss that, that would have, he would have offered his condolences. <laughs> but you know, like, that's not common. Typically, they just give you the the side eye and just wonder. Uh, how how much paperwork is it going to be with HR if I just let this one go? <laughs> I just recently learned this is one of my favorite things to to do to my my boss is to get him to like cross his arms and shake his head while grinning and walk away like you know I've confused you, and abused type thing. You just like breaking him on the regular but the other favorite thing that i love is saying the one thing that just absolutely gets him and he looks at me and says okay you may go now as like you know a dismissal please be away from my presence i just recently learned and he has been saying this to me weekly for years that um he got that from tombstone (laughs) i mean that's such doc holiday i mean it's better than um the leader of the cowboys going well bye uh, yeah i mean and like i love that part of tombstone and it bothers me that when i quote it everyone's like what do you mean like they don't they don't get that i'm going to tombstone oh, you know like I'm when so sorry when the erps are leaving town after the brother dies mm-hmm. and he just goes bye it's the same energy as baffle you should Oh, it's exactly the same energy. It's just a different demographic for the content. In a different century. It's right? fine. Same energy, though. Oh, it's totally the same energy. My new favorite thing now that I know that that's why he says it is to constantly like insert whenever it seems the most inappropriate. Oh, he speaks Latin. Now I really hate him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, what are you going to do? Stand there and bleed? Or are you going to do something? Yeah, all, all of every single quote in that movie could be used in my line of work. <laughs> Honestly, I would never stop quoting it knowing that. The the one that is obviously the most used is I'll be your Huckleberry from you know, oh, somewhere down the line. <laughs> that is Val Kil- that is peak Val Kilmer. He couldn't have gotten better. At that that was it. That You're was Daisy his... if you do. Yep, that was his. What do you call it? Mag- magnum opus? 
It have to be because yeah. as good looking as he was in Top Gun, Iceman was just a flat character. I mean, I did love him in The Saint. That was oh. that was a good one. No, you're not wrong. That was a good one. But as far as I'm concerned, he was made to play Doc Holliday. Like, oh. that's, that's what he was. Yeah. Apparently, my hypocrisy it. knows no bounds. No bounds. <laughs> <laughs> so next week on our on our podcast, we'll be discussing Tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. May, maybe. I mean, not. maybe. <laughs> well, what, what do you got? Because last time I ran out of time telling you all about Shelly's leg. Um, I absolutely love Shelly's leg. I would like, can, is um, screen sharing on? Can I, can I share my screen with you? Briefly? Try it. And if not, I'll edit this part out. So people don't think I'm inept and need to do the same thing every single time. <laughs> I, I assume that you don't, but I just ask because I think I might be a little bit in it. Okay. Screen share. Oh, you've disabled me. I, I don't think that it's I've disabled you. I think that it makes me redo it all the time, every time. I feel like that's probably accurate. I know there's a way to like set a meeting so it's the same login information every time too, but I don't know how we do that. I'm, I like putting the new stuff every time. I like making my life harder. Don't tell me how to live my life. I wasn't because I enjoy putting the passcode in like I might be hacking something. Maybe it'll load. Have you seen this woman before? I feel like I have, but she also has that very dark, smoldering 1930s quintessential je ne sais quoi. Je ne sais quoi is the perfect way to describe this woman. <laughs> um, Let me, okay, so. Like if you said she she was in this movie, this movie, this movie, and this movie, I'd go, sure. Well, she wasn't in any movies, but several movies have been made about her. Is this the Black Dahlia? No. This is the story of Nancy Wake, the White Mouse. Okay. Any of that ring a bell? I really hope no. it doesn't. But I feel like my, my, okay, my brain is doing that searching. It's loading. Searching, You're buffering. Searching. <laughs> like, it's just, it's the, the um, flashlight symbol for Microsoft, you know, going back and forth as it is scouring the cobwebs of my mind. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to pretend like you don't know the story at all then. Honestly, that's the safest move because if I said, oh gosh, I know all about, like my brain would be cobbling together some semblance of meaning that wouldn't be based in historical fact. <laughs> well, excellent because Nancy Wake, okay, before I get into Nancy Wake, um, my, the, my sources are many, there are many sources. My um, sources are many, they are legion. They are, in fact, they are legion. And it took me days to find a source that was coherent in a way that timeline made sense for storytelling so every source you had was drunk it really had that vibe but honestly i just think that it wasn't that it was like dear source you're drunk please go home work your crap out and come back in the morning it was like there's just such a story that finding like the key points to okay. be like and then this happened and it not be like a seven hour podcast. 
that was that was what took me um every ounce of my moral fortitude to mental fortitude to no i like moral i like the fact that you were just gonna start raiding and looting (laughs) and lighting things on fire because it just didn't make sense we're sticking with that angie don't correct yourself moral fortitude it is (laughs) so um there was a delightful article in the guardian in 2011 called nancy wake the white or nancy wake the white mouse and the gestapo a website called rejectedprincesses.com, which is amazing. If you ever get a chance, I highly recommend just viewing it. It's pretty cool. Um, several Australian and New Zealand-based um, websites. The jewishvirtuallibrary.org. A great article on the New York from the New York Times. <laughs> this might be my favorite. Womenwhocycle.com. <laughs> As in bicycle or women uh-huh. who have menstrual cycles? Bicycle. Okay. Um, Australian war hero Nancy Wake riding a bike. Um, there's just, there's, there's so many, but there, every source had something new to offer. So it was like, you can't not include them. <laughs> and I get to use the currency converter, which I know is really your favorite thing. Honestly, just knowing that you went to that nth level of data, just. Ah, chef's kiss. I know, isn't it? Um, Okay, so I'm just going to get right into it because there is no real way to like walk circles around her or muck about. She is about business from the get. Okay. (laughs) Nancy Wake was born on August 30th in 1912 in Wellington, New Zealand. And before I go any further, I'm just going to tell you there are things about this woman that you are going to say from beginning to end is chef's kiss. Fabulous. I promise. Go on. She actually reminds me a little bit of you. <laughs> then she's amazing. And we should be all knowing and touting her name. We should. Poetry- Nancy, wait. <laughs> Nancy. In fact, so she was the youngest of six siblings, but by 1914, she was right around two years old. Her family moved her to North Sydney, Australia. With them, or did they just ship her off? No, all of them went. Um, okay. She had a very unfortunate and unstable childhood. Her dad left the family and moved back to New Zealand. Saying they, wait, she, they were in Wellington. They, where she was they... born in Wellington, then okay. they relocated when she was two to Sydney, Australia. Sid- okay, Sydney is different than... Okay, I'm with yeah. you now. Sorry, I didn't make that leap. No I didn't board that it was, plane. It was, it was probably a boat they oh, I didn't. I didn't board that boat. <laughs> um, she... So he let... He leave, the father leaves the family... Um. Goes back to New Zealand, basically saying that he is going to be making a documentary about the Maori. Um, he never comes back, and she was only four years old. Okay, that is that is a very different excuse than I'm going to be right back. I'm going to go get a pack of cigarettes. Yeah, like he was really committed to his cause here. I'm I'm going to go make a documentary about the Maori. Hey, and I don't it's know. like, but you're an accountant. What do you mean you're <laughs> making a documentary about? Well, what I think is really interesting is that he was a journalist. Okay, so that does check. So, but like in 1916, what kind of documentary are you making about the Maori as a journalist? They exist. Did you know they exist? I, they yeah, this should, land. We should push them off this land. You see this land? We, could, we, we should do this. <laughs> Everybody, we, they have stuff we could take. I feel like you're probably on the right track. Um, but because of this, it kind of creates a imp- impoverished situation for her mother and the rest of her siblings. 
And from what I can tell, she didn't have a warm relationship with her mother. Her mother was very um, kind of standoffish and not there. I, I believe there are quotes about her mother even like outright saying like she's she wasn't beautiful and she wasn't a kind child and and to be fair miss wake (laughs) nancy was a bit of a rebel in her younger years she got in trouble at school often um but right uh all the good ones do yeah (laughs) um character it sure does uh she was very witty though and when she was 16 she left home to work as a nurse so she just kind of like up and leaves. She's like, I'm not about this anymore. Peace out, homies, and leaves. But at the age of 20, she receives a small inheritance from one of her aunts who wanted her to see the world. And Nancy never really fully understood why she received this inheritance from her aunt. Typically, it's because um, they die. Yeah, but she didn't know like the reason she chose her. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I mean, I, I hate to explain you know, well. how inheritance works. Um, there's thoughts that perhaps this aunt kind of saw a little bit of herself in, in Nancy in that, like, she was kind of the black sheep and the rebel of the family. And she just kind of wanted to help a sister out. That's kind of what, that's what I think. Um, (laughs) that was, it was an inheritance of $200. Okay. But in 1914 money in, in that was in 1932, but in today's money, if I did my math, right. It would be almost $20,000. Well, I mean, to be fair, you did say a $20,000 inheritance earlier. Did I? No. Okay. So it was a $200 inheritance. If I did my math right in today's money, it would be a $20,000 inheritance. And I mean, it's not a revolutionary amount of money, but it could change your life. And it certainly did for Nancy. She used the money to go to... New York and London and Paris and she thought Paris was definitely the place for her and as far as I'm concerned same girl same um during this is one of my favorite parts of her entire story during her time in London she became a freelance journalist for the Hearst group because I guess the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree pop was a journalist so she grows up to be a journalist yeah um, but in order to get the job, she was asked what she knew of the Middle East, especially Egypt, because I, in 1932, the Middle East was all the rage, right? Like, we're fine. We're making all these great discoveries. There's, uh, you know, whatever. All yeah. the things. When did so, Carter crack the tomb? That was the 20s or 30s? That was the 20s. I think that was 19, I think it was 1920, 1921. I'll have to Google it, but it was definitely the 20s. Okay. Okay. Just celebrated 100 years um <clears throat> oh that's right because you went and saw how Hawas Hawas Hawasazahi Hawas the book is amazing I have to show it to you it's so cool okay I got a book out of it um the lit hub which is like a, a literary hub for <laughs> great stories about uh, her story was all I read on there but it's, it's got some resources there has a great description of what happens next so in order to get the job, she was asked what she knew of the Middle East and especially Egypt. Quote, I've been to Cairo four times and I can read and write Egyptian fluently. She's bullshitting. The editor wanted a demonstration, so he took a book off the shelf and began reading. After some time and a page of hieroglyphs, he asked her to read it back to him. She did verbatim. She was hired that day. However, she knew nothing 
aside from the fact that modern Egyptians speak Arabic. <laughs> but what she had done was taken a shorthand skill she had learned at Queen's College and some and some some sources say she wrote it backwards. The editor was so delighted, he sent her to the Paris office on the spot. <laughs> okay, well done. I mean, solid con. I I've been to Cairo four times. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely love it. Within weeks, her first assignment was a trip to Berlin to interview the German Chancellor Adolf Hitler. Oh, geez. Okay. Okay. However, while working in Paris, she quite enjoys the nightlife of upper echelon Paris, and she lived a very extravagant life because back then, all you had to do was sell like one or two articles a month, and, and your rent this was is, paid. This is going to be like my girl, Aline Griffin, who like was buying those couture dresses pretty and much living an incredible life and her rent was 26 bucks a month or some bull crap yeah exactly that like she schmoozed she loved nice things she loved fancy jewelry she had you know the big beautiful red lipstick the whole bit by 1936 she had met a man called Henri Fioca, and he was a wealthy industrialist from Marseille, and they settled down together and were married by 1939. This but is Eileen Griffin, <laughs> but this is this is the French version. If something tells me, occupied France, she's going to be pulling some Virginia Hall stuff. Oh, you'll see. So, in 1935, rewind just a bit, she had traveled to Vienna and Berlin, and she witnessed the hate and discrimination and gen then the general anti-semitism um she witnessed beatings and torture by local gestapo while she was there and she later stated quote my hatred for the nazis was very very deep if ever the opportunity arose i would do everything i could this would later inspire her to work tirelessly for the defeat of the nazis when she was given the chance <laughs> she was once quoted as saying I don't see why we women should just wave our men a proud goodbye and then knit, <laughs> then knit them balakavas. <laughs> she believed she could help the cause, so she did. Her biographer, Peter Fitzsimmons, says, quote, we both came to the conclusion that she was 10 times the man I would ever be. She described her younger self as someone who, quote, loved a good drink and a handsome man, especially Frenchmen. <laughs> so that is up there. Have you okay? Have you ever heard of the woman Tallulah Bankhead? I can't say that I have. Okay, she once is quoted in saying, "My daddy warned me about men and liquor, but he never said a thing about fast women and cocaine." <laughs> Same energy. <laughs> yeah, and this was like 1920s. We are like, I'm sorry, what? What? <laughs> what did your daddy not tell you? I I just choked oh. on my gum, lady. Madam, <laughs> I say. I see the monocle shaking. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> according to the New York Times, the mil the German military describes her as, and for all the French that I love, I'm gonna butcher this, but they describe her later as la soeurs blanche or the white mouse for her ability to elude capture. The Guardian author Kim Wilshire of Paris has this to say about Wake. This was in her like obituary column. That was okay. like like her life story after she passed. With her co coiffed hair 
and red lipstick, Wake was the epitome of glamour. But when she was dropped into occupied France, she became a fighting force. She is super giving me Agent Carter vibes from the Marvel Universe. You know, she is. She's like the the version of Virginia Hall that is made for TV. Like Virginia mm-hmm. Hall would like adopt a sky, filed her teeth down to look like a French peasant. Like, oh, yeah, all the things. Um, yeah. I, I think she was just serving looks. <laughs> like Beyonce yeah. had nothing on this woman. Um, now that I've given you a bit of a, a bit of a description of her, I'm going to get you to the juicy bits. Uh, So Henri, her husband, was wealthy enough and far enough away from the fighting that they very easily could have just went on with life in their ivory tower um, with little, little bother from the Nazis. Little interruption. Yeah. Yeah. They could have just carried on. Um, But she promised herself that she would do everything in her power to bring down the Nazis. So her girl becomes her chances nearly upon us um Henri was not known for ever telling Nancy no and that included their wedding sometime just before the big day she booked like a wellness retreat spa thing you know lose a couple pounds glam it up yeah near London she heard that Germany had invaded Poland so instead of going to her event she instead pops over to the London recruitment office and says something like, I don't know, put me in coach. And they said, sure, we can put you to work in the canteen. We will help feed them in. I'm pretty sure she said something to the effect of, well, forget this. There was probably a little bit more expletives because she was Australian and not known for being. Well, they use the C word with great, great gusto. Oh, genius. <laughs> Like, yeah, I used to have an Australian boss and it was just like, wow, that was said. Okay. Well done. Didn't know you could use that that way, but you did. Yeah. Didn't (laughs) know that was a verb. It is now. Fabulous. Add that to the list. Um, So she ends up going back home to Henri and they marry in a simple ceremony, not the lavish one they planned. Um. So their ceremony was in November of 1939. For the first six months of their marriage, they lived just this lavish life. She's even quoted as saying something to the effect of, in that early time, she was the most frivolous, useless person on the planet. Just enjoyed being filthy rich, to a, filthy rich and, and having the time of her life, right? Um, but only six months later, Germany invades France, and she is bound and determined to help the effort, so she convinces Henri to give her one of his trucks. She didn't even know how to drive. <laughs> she Dang. had it made over into an ambulance and asked Henri if one of his mechanics could teach her how to drive. Sources say she learned in an afternoon or a day. I mean, was it a stick? I'm going to assume in, in the early 40s. I had yeah. a feeling it had to be. Like, okay, yeah. so maybe she wasn't driving well. Like, she's not doing NASCAR and that thing, I, I'm assuming. Not not quite yet, no. Um, <laughs> so Henri gets his, his war papers. So he goes to war and she goes to work. She would transport the wounded to hospitals from Belgium to Paris, which would have been brave enough. She could have been given medals for that, but she always felt like she could do more. In June, however, of 1940, Paris falls to Germany, and she knows she has to get home to the safety of Marseille. 
excuse me, Marseille, or risk arrest or arrest or even worse. So she drives her truck slash ambulance as far as she can from Paris to Marseille before it breaks down, where she decides she'll just walk and hitchhike the rest of the way home. Through war <laughs> occupied France. No big yeah, deal. Right? You do the okay. thing. Okay. So she arrives home to find Henri has returned from the front lines. My guess is he was probably wounded at this time, but also I don't know how being incredibly wealthy works in that instance. I've never I been don't... incredibly wealthy, but I have a feeling I have <laughs> it a feeling helps. it's a very different world. Yeah. Um I did I did start to look into Henri's life as well, but there was again so much that it was just like he could have to have his own podcast. Um so anyway, they begin working together for the French resistance. She begins acting as a trusted courier and as well as a transporter for refugees, Jews, soldiers, and the like, and getting them across the border through the Pyrenees into safer Spain, which was a dangerous trek, but they did it. Like, that was their get these people to safety in whatever means possible. And she used everything in her arsenal, including her massive wealth, her big brains, her willpower, her quick learning, and striking beauty, topped off with, of course, the bright red lipstick. During the day, they would act as business as normal. She'd get her hair done. She'd go to brunch with friends. And then at night, Henri and her would go about the business of planning and transporting allies and goods where they needed to go. They were also stockpiling anything they could get their hands on that could be use to, useful to the allies, like black market soap. You know, I get that soap would be could be black market, but I would have gone more with champagne or caviar or gunpowder or cheese. Something. So I thought it was weird that it was noted that it was specifically black market soap. Um, cigarettes to foodstuffs and anything in between. And they would share it with anybody that needed it. Um, nearby at Fort St. John, there was a host of POWs who were allowed parole. So they could kind of walk to town um, and as long as they were minding their business, they were good to come back and forth. They start visiting the Fiocas and um, the Fiocas start acting as couriers for them as well. Getting who news. are the Fiocas? Um, Henri and Nancy. His name oh. is Fioca. So once she's married, she is Nancy Fioca. But uh, okay. for the duration of the story, I will call her Wake because that makes the most sense to me. <laughs> okay, great. I but just, I didn't this make time, that logical leap, so. Well, that that is probably my bad. During this time, she did go by the name Madame Fioca, though, which I think is. Okay. I mean, Damn why girl. not? I know, right? <laughs> That's so, Madame to you. Exactly. Oh, how dare you? And she was very much that way. Like, there's some great stories that I didn't include in here of her time in Marseille and how she just did not play people's games like she was not about it handle your business and mind your own like <laughs> that was very much how she lived with things um but those those POWs that were nearby would come to the house and they would host them they'd feed them they'd give them cash they would do whatever everything they could to get those POWs out mm. so they began working as couriers for them as well um this worked really well until a neighbor who lived across the street turned out to be the Vichy Commissionaire. I had to look this up. Do you know what a, what a Vichy government is? No. Okay. So Britannica.com has this to say about Vichy rule. Vichy French, France, which is formerly the French state, 
between July 1940 and September 44 was under the regime of Marshal Philip Philippe Pétain for the Nazi German defeat of France to the Allied liberation in World War II. So basically, the Vichy government was like a puppet government for the Germans. Okay. Um, and he lives across the street from them. That's and not he, ideal. <laughs> not ideal, no. And he begins to watch them very, very closely because he's starting to be a little sus of their activities, if you will. So, you know, they do what every rich person does and they just rent a flat somewhere else and they run their, what do you want to call it? Their uh, nefarious activities through yes. the front. Their, yes, their nefarious activities through the front without the watchful eye of a nosy neighbor who might turn them over to the Nazis at any moment. In November of 42, the Germans marched on unoccupied France and the Germans knew a woman was helping, and they assumed her to be French, but knew little else. She evaded them constantly, which earned her the nickname of the White Mouse. Haley Bridgman, she's an author, she has this to say about Wake. Quote, one time, she and four men working the resistance rode, to, rode a train. She carried a suitcase filled with butchered black market pig. She ended up sharing a train compartment with a Gestapo agent who actually was on the train trying to capture the white mouse. Oh, my she, goodness. She charmed him into carrying her suitcase for her, which breezed her through the customs checkpoint and then made it safely away. End quote. The audacity. Oh, I would darling, be would you throwing up in my handbag. <laughs> right? Um, she once told an Australian TV interviewer that, quote, it was much easier for us, you know, referring to women to travel all over france a woman could get out of a lot of trouble that a man just could not well that's what virginia hall said when she was being the spy in france is she noted right. that she had free movement it seems to be very much the case um at least for because i guess we're just supposed to stay home and knit balakavas for our husbands right i mean you just yeah that's that's the that that's the blessing and the curse men assume less of us which means in war we're we not looked at more <laughs> but in the office we're not given the responsibility in fact yes um by 1943 she learns that the nazis have put a bounty on her head of five million francs today modern that was back five then million in, back then yeah if I did my math right today, that would be $32,503,178.57. I would turn myself in for that <laughs> amount of money. <laughs> right? Um, so, like, if there's an expert on wartime exchange rates 80 years later, could you could you help <laughs> me out? Because that was an hour of my life working that out. Because did Wait you know the French, the French money system changed after the war? So it was very, like, what? the whole thing. Yeah, it was a whole thing. <laughs> I just thought you just go into the converter and just be like, well, the franc has gone to this thing. And then, okay, convert franc to U.S. dollar. And then well, that's your... You'd think, no, it was a whole... Probably would have been easier, but I walked myself in circles around this for over an hour of my life. <laughs> um, For comparison, so that in 5 million francs, which is $32 million today, the bounty for Osama bin Laden was $27 million. If that's any indication about how the Nazis felt about Wake. I mean, I now want to know, I don't remember the bounty on Virginia Hall, but I know that at one point she was, I don't know if public enemy number one, but damn near close. Probably up there as high as that. 
that's what you get for not believing women, like not, not believing or believing in like next thing, you know, we're the biggest threat you've got to your entire regime. And here we are just putting our lipstick on and minding our business. And, you know, worrying about dinner and getting the kids to school. And did they do their homework? Probably not. So (laughs) what is that smell in their room? Because it's not cupcakes. It's not cupcakes. I told Ethan the other day that his room looked like an Abercrombie and Finch explode. He needed to help it. (laughs) It's terrifying. I just I'm, tell I'm my also daughter an undergown resistance ring as well, but I'm not exactly sure what for yet. <laughs> yeah, that's that's I just resist everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more of a public resistance. Sorry. It's, thanks. I hate it. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. You told your daughter what? Oh, I told my daughter that I only wash the clothes that make it into her hamper. That's true. Yeah. Like I'm my job is not to clean her room. In fact nor do your laundry once you're old enough to do it yourself that'll be when she's 12 and boy is that time coming ethan's been doing his since he was eight i i messed up and i said something about 12 probably just because that's the time i started doing my laundry and so <laughs> you're now uh, rethinking everything <laughs> i mean i'm i'm just stuck with that timeline right hey you know whatever works Upon learning of the bounty, she and Henri decide that she needs to get out of France and make way for England. So she would decided to use the same underground route that she had sent so many before her on. It was called the Pat O'Leary Line, and it was very similar to our Underground Railroad here during the slavery era yep. in the U.S. Um, however, while making her escape, the Gestapo stopped her train and arrested everybody on board. The trucks used to transport the prisoners got stuck in some sort of traffic jam, and Nancy and the others took the opportunity to run. Sadly, though, they were caught and taken to jail anyway. There, she was told that the Gestapo in her own town denied knowing her existence, while the Gestapo in another town claimed her to be a prostitute. Honestly, I think they were just covering up their incompetence. That's my opinion. She learned, though, that they were trying to frame her for blowing up a movie theater in another town. While in jail, they spent days beating her, questioning her, trying to get her to fess up to stuff she didn't do or sell her mates out. She said nothing. When her contact in the underground came, he tried to use a ruse and false papers to get her out. They tried to escape five times. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. They were lucky on the sixth attempt and Wake and ten other prisoners made it out and onto a train headed for Spain. Once on the train, they learned that the Germans were planning to board the train, so they literally jump into action by jumping off the moving train as it slows down, and under a barrage of machine gun fire, they run safely up a hill to the mountainside, where they stayed hidden for a couple of days till it was safe to keep moving. Okay, that's more badass than Doris Payne jumping from a a train. Right? Uh, Machine gun fire, uh, and then just running up a hill. I mean, they didn't have Rolexes, but they... She didn't have machine gun fire. I mean, maybe one of them was wearing a Rolex. You don't know. You're right. I'm, I'm being ask. judgy. I'm being judgy. She, I mean, she was. I, yeah, Rolex was a thing then. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to derail Yeah, you. I gotta go think about the history of Rolex. I'll be back. <laughs> um, Join us next week. <laughs> uh, at this time, Wake splits up with some of the others and she heads to Nice where Madame Sansoon, who was an enemy of the Reich, would give them shelter and care. I need to know way more about Madame Sansoon. However, I did not look for today's story. I will look 
for another story later because she sounds like a pretty badass lady as well. She had sheltered many men and women on the run while her children, who were only in their teens, worked as couriers. Wow. When I read that, I almost cried because I thought, oh, my son is 15 years old. I would absolutely trust him to do a job like that. But what kind of desperation do you have to have to send your children to a do a job like that? When you send your children to work, well, it's that quote of like, you know, don't be sad of raising your children during times of dragons or something. What is the quote? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. That is a great quote. And yeah, when when the quote is actually there in its entirety, but yeah. <laughs> well, hold on. Let me let me look it up now. I'm on it. Never feel sorry for raising dragon slayers in a time when there are actual dragons. That's what it is. That's the quote. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I brought a tear to my eye. I hugged my children extra tight after that. Um, but thankfully, they don't live in a place where that's a thing right now. So hey. we've we still got a couple years. Yeah. We're s- <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so about three weeks later, um, Miss Wake decides she's she has received new papers and she decides to hit the road. They walked, they rode in the back of a coal truck as far as it could go, and then they met some guides to begin the 47-hour march to Spain. They traveled over mountains and walked right through a blizzard, and hungry and tired, they finally make it to Spain, only to get promptly arrested. <laughs> yeah, because everybody's invading Spain through the Pyrenees. Right. They were held with no food or water for three days, shackled to a chair. She was un- unable to answer any of the officer's questions because she didn't speak Spanish. Well, it's really good to not <laughs> give information yeah, if you don't speak helpful. the language. I, I, That's my favorite trick. Super helpful. I just get that image of like, if they ask, you're deaf and I'm blind. Like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they decide to feed them and they toss them onto a bus to uh genera and the judge there <laughs> charges them with illegal entry but is instead bribed with a thousand pounds which today is like fifty eight thousand dollars you know um that would that would make me rethink my thoughts on this particular case as well right this is why i'm not a judge and that was in english money in american money it would be seventy two thousand dollars um so yeah it gets better i mean like okay sorry uh drop the charges my bad this is why i'm it's, not a judge you know i i just <laughs> i feel like since... you're gonna be okay like i feel like there's 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 about seventy eight thousand pounds or seventy eight thousand dollars worth of moral fortitude that i feel like you're gonna be able to bring this country that maybe i i hadn't I'm seen before so sorry you don't speak spanish i'm sorry you did what Okay, bye. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> you're here just, to visit a friend. Fabulous. Just use, use the rest of this money to go learn the language. You know, great. Have it up. Yeah. Go. The tapas are fabulous over here across the, <laughs> across the main street. Fabulous. Did I, yeah, exactly. Enjoy the wine. Um, so they were let go, and she makes it her way to Barcelona, and then two weeks later to Great Britain. While there. Wake waited for her husband for like two months before she decided that he wasn't coming. Personally, 
I think that that that's because that by this time he himself is either in hiding or already captured by the Gestapo. He would be tortured and was murdered by the Gestapo in August of 43 because he refused to give up her whereabouts. And here I was going like, dang, that actually, she waited quite a bit. I'd have been like, well, it's been five minutes. You're not here. Goodbye. Which is the premise of every Shakespearean story ever. (laughs) You know, I'm just a tragic hero. Let's be honest. Here you are living your life being five minutes late five minutes early i guess i'd be five minutes late you'd be five minutes early i missed the I'm, train i'm chronically <laughs> early i'm chronically late <laughs> i've noticed thank you for loving me anyway <laughs> we all have our strengths i guess um so she, okay so he refuses to give her whereabouts um my guess is he probably really didn't know himself for sure anyway at this point to begin with like he you had know, hopes look- I don't even know if she speaks Spanish or not. I, yeah. I mean, and for being, it's it's several months have gone by. And so I'm thinking that even if she had some way of communicating with him, I'm sure he didn't 100% knew anyway. And he wasn't going to sell her out to begin with. So maybe she's way, with her dad recording a documentary of the Maori. <laughs> you know, it could be. Um But that being said, she gets into contact with a free French headquarters, but they think she could be a spy, so they say no. So she reaches out to the British SEO, which is the Special Operations Executive. Yeah, that's how Virginia Hall got brought in. Right? Yeah. And she begins the fastest, most intense training ever. She learns to master any weapon put in her hand, as well as hand-to-hand combat, along with uh, how to destroy tanks, how to... Uh, uh, what is it called like disrupt supply lines like she learns all the things right the senior female in the seo overseeing the agents seo or soe excuse me soe i put seo that's fine i mean backwards search engine optimization is also important (laughs) but probably not as important during world war ii Probably not. Probably not. Morse code was probably more important back then. Um, but the agent overseeing the the individuals headed to France. Her name is Vera Atkins, and she remembers Wake as quote a real Australian bombshell, tremendous vitality, flashing eyes. Everything she did, she did well. Training reports record that she was a very good and fast shot, and she possessed excellent field craft. She could, quote, put them into shame by her cheerful spirit and strength of character. Yeah, no, she's fantastic. Once the training was completed, she did the next logical thing, and she went back to France in April of 1944 via parachute in heels. Uh, Yeah, like... (laughs) Because she's glamorous. I mean... Here I would be like going, well, I got the heels in the handbag, but I mean, maybe it's just because I'm on crutches and I just don't trust myself with any. One of the sources that I read said that she came, so in her like pack, she had her like a, another change of clothes and a couple of guns and her favorite lipstick. Of course. Of course she did. Um, so she parachutes into France because, you know, she's glamorous as hell. So she does it in her high heels. And she and some of her team make it Earthside, but they're tangled in the trees where thankfully... the Wait a minute, the, they made it Earthside? Like from jumping to the plane, like they land, but they're tangled that's in trees. The, is that the technical term, Earthside? No, that's the term I put there. So it's oh, technical okay. now because I, that's I what I said. Didn't, I didn't know because it's like you can say like when I when I lived in Japan and then I would come stateside. 
Yeah. Okay. So that's what I was thinking when I wrote that because I didn't know how else to say. Because I was they just landed, like, what? they didn't technically land yet. Okay. Okay. <laughs> because I was just like Earthside. Like, where else could you go? You're going to go Earthside. Like, you don't just, just stay not, skyward. They're not in midair anymore. They're closer to Earth than to the airplane. <laughs> okay. However, they are tangled in a bunch of trees. Task failed successfully. In fact, which is very thankful that it went this way because the leader of the resistance group known as the Maquis, if i pronounce that right henry henri teverde would say quote i hope that all the trees in france bear such beautiful fruit this year because he's looking up into a tree Ugh. to see this gorgeous woman with her high heels dangling <laughs> I mean, and if she's in a dress, he's in the best position he could probably hope Absolutely, to see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and being the absolute delight she was, her reply was, quote, cut out that bullshit and get me out of this tree. <laughs> yep. Love her. Right. So while in France, she works. I'm going to continue to butcher his name. So can I just call him Henri T? She works for Henri T to secure weapons and other much needed supplies and equipment that would be dropped via parachute as well. Along with all this, she helped to recruit willing helpers to their cause, eventually getting a small army together of about 7,500, whose goal was to attack German installations in the local Gestapo headquarters. So she was able to cobble together 7,500, and the army of Liechtenstein was only 80 <laughs> men strong. Yes. Okay, not, so, not to convolute all the stories and all the podcasts we've ever done together, but... But, yes, um, one of the things I heard in an interview about her was that when she was recruiting troops, these men would come and they would be like, oh, no, we cannot be led by a woman. No, she is just a femme, you know, and like pretend to be big masculine men. And she would go get the nearest bottle of whiskey. She'd set it down on the table and say, all right, boys, well, then we're going to drink about it. And the next morning, when she was still awake and had drunk them under the table, they all resigned to her rule and had much respect for her. <laughs> Story time. So, when Mike and I were dating, he lived in a house that had a bunch of dudes in it. And one of his roommates was pretty neat. And I thought, boy, this guy would be a really good friend or a really, a really good match to, to my friend Meg. And we had tried to set them up. We had tried to introduce them a couple of times. And each time, like she always like flaked out because she knew what was happening. And she was just like, nah, I'm, I'm good. Fair. Well, I had gotten a recipe for something called apple pie, which is a drink made with Everclear. Okay. And then like- everything that starts with that's a great idea. Yeah. And <laughs> like, you have to like ferment it again, like- after you like, so this is like a process and it, it took like a month to make sure the stuff was, was ready. And so once I'd gotten it made and had quite a bit of it, like that, cause you don't make a small amount. I had told Mike, I was like, well, Hey, let's, let's invite Matt and make over. We'll introduce them. We'll, we'll break it out. We'll see if it's any good. Um, I think Meg had dialysis machines that she didn't tell us about because <laughs> We got hammered and Meg and I decided we were going to crash in my room. She wakes up the next morning, brighter than sunshine. And, and the other can be, and the other three of us are looking at her like, 
where did you put it? Because we watched you drink, like you drank to keep up with us. This isn't right. Like you maintain, like what were you throwing it down the sink? Were you, are, did you water all the plants with apple pie? Like, what did you do? They're now married, but excellent. (laughs) (laughs) So when I hear people drink somebody under the table, I, I think of Meg. Mad respect. And that's what these men had for her. Mad respect. <laughs> they wake up in the morning and realize that they will follow this woman to the ends of the earth and to the end of that aisle. And and delightedly so. <laughs> yes, ma'am. You've got it. Um, However, so like I said, their goal was to attack German installations and, um, you know, put the kibosh on the headquarter, the local Gestapo headquarters that were in the area that they were in Montlacon. There was a lot of success. However, in June of 44, the Germans launch a large attack on the resistance and it circles them, causing great casualty and the fleeing of others. It was during this escape that the radio man realized he'd lost his radio. And our girl knowing that London and others like outposts must be updated, dons her cutest dress, dolls up her hair, packs a picnic and borrows a bicycle and begins the journey to Chateau Rue, where another operator and radio were waiting. It was over 400 kilometers, some say 500, or roughly 310 miles. Either 72 way, hours round trip. Just her and a picnic and a tube of lipstick? Yep. Um, when asked about the ride, she said, quote, it was absolutely imperative that even though I was exhausted and windblown from traveling so far, I not look that way. Whatever German patrol saw me had to think I was simply a young housewife tootling along home or to the village with not a worry with not who was not worth bothering with, but not someone and someone on a major trip. God, I butchered that. Anyway, she also said that when the, the trucks with the Germans drove by and they passed and they waved or they catcalled at her, she was demure and polite all the while thinking, I want to break their effing necks. <laughs> I mean, aside from her ability to maintain a 300 plus mile bike ride without looking like she's broken a sweat. I mean, because I'd look homeless by the end of that trek. Oh, I'd look homeless in 30 minutes. <laughs> I mean, just looking at the bike, I would start like sweating grievously from my armpits. And she kept up appearances the entire time. Um, in fact, as she got closer and closer to the, to the location, she was only given the location with a detailed description not an address. So she's just like looking for this area that some guy told her about. Um, But in the meantime, are you like me that if you're driving someplace, like you have to like compulsively reread the directions every 30 seconds? Yes. And I get that. Like if you've passed the bush, you've gone too far. That makes way more sense to me than actual directions, but you are traveling at a minimum 150 miles from your location yeah so like how and it's not like you know oh at that convenience store turn right and when you see the third mailbox with the light blue hinge then you need to like right so that's basically the description that they gave her so that's what she's looking for um, I did hear in in one source they said that she did have a really extensive a real extensive knowledge of the bus and train systems of France from her time of living in France. Like she was constantly traveling around it, 
But I still think you need a lot more fortitude to bike somewhere and figure it out based on a description and not an address. Yeah. Like, yeah. and maybe the SOE managed all of that orienteering that you would need, but I would not be equipped for that. Right. Um, I, I would have eaten through all the of the cheese store. in that picnic basket and I would for be sure. weeping underneath a tree. 30 minutes from where I left. Like, <laughs> you'd have to come pick me up <laughs> in, a, in a truck. Um, and I would never look at another bike again. Um, but I would have eaten she... my lipstick. <laughs> it's been 29 minutes. <laughs> I've eaten all the other snacks, which Ethan would tell you is definitely me. Like, I'm not going to survive. We've only been gone 45 minutes. I didn't pack a sandwich. Um, anyway, as she gets closer and closer to her destination, she is coming upon more and more German like outposts and stops. <laughs> And she would, rather than, like, try to just pass them, she'd stop and say things like, oh, do you need to stop me? Do you need to search me? To appear... Compliant? Compliant, innocent housewife just tootling along to her girlfriend's well, brunch or something, right? There, were, there was a meme I saw that showed... It talked about a woman who would drive a bicycle over a German checkpoint twice a day. And every day they would go through every inch of that bicycle searching for contraband. It wasn't until after the war that she told everybody she was smuggling bicycles over that checkpoint. <laughs> that is delightful. <laughs> I love her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and they never like pictured, oh, the bike coming back is different than the bike going forward. They're mm -hmm. too busy, like, checking the, the bars of the handlebars, you know, like, the actual, yeah. like, checking her cavernous spaces. Yeah. That is hilarious. Um, needless to say, they all waved her right by. They were like, oh, no, carry on, darling. You're beautiful. Move along. You're too pretty um, to be a spy. Pretty much. She, she said, <laughs> once she made it back to St. Santin, and I think I pronounced that wrong, St. Satine. Anyway, she vowed she would never ride a bike again. She I bet. I bet the the her body maintained that bike seat oh, formation for, for ever. I, there would be lots of weeping. Um, she said later, I quote, I think in retrospect, that was really one of the bravest things. Well, not brave, but funny things that I ever did during the war. <laughs> I like how she refers to that as funny as opposed to the last time I got on that GD bike. Right? Um, after these events, she continues to work with uh, Henri T, making sure that the parachute drops occur on, on schedule every other night. And at this point, I only have a couple more points to make before the end, but sh they are doozies. Once she learned that some of the men were using three girls as prostitutes, she demanded they be let go. She fed them cleaned them, and gave them new clothes. Two were released without incident, but she suspected the third to be an informer for the Nazis, and thus she was executed. Nancy appeared to never feel remorse for it, and the men refused to kill her, but Nancy didn't. Wow. And here's my, probably one of my favorite parts of the whole story. Another time, she stated that while on a raid, she killed an SS sentry so that he wouldn't raise the alarm. In 1999, she told the story as follows, quote, they taught this judo chop stuff with the flat of the hand at SOE, and I practiced away at it, but this was the only time I used it. Whack! And it killed him, all right? I was really surprised. 
unquote. She said that. And in the interview, she is this like very grandmotherly old lady, so cute. And she like hand motions the whole thing. But before she tells the story, she goes like this. <laughs> she does the neck death thing. Um, I love her so much. In August of 44, the Americans invaded southern France. And during the festivities of the D-Day celebration, she finally learned of her husband's death. Oh, very sad. They were definitely meant to be together and he didn't make it out. So sad about that. Um, in fact, the pictures I showed you, the second picture with the man, that's that's her husband, Mr. Fioca. Um, after the war, she worked for the British intelligence at the air ministry in both Prague and Paris and eventually went back to Australia where she dabbled in politics, but would later move back to London where she died on August 7th of 2011 at almost 99 years old of natural freaking causes and if that is not the most badass way to go after the life she lived yeah i don't know what is um she received a boatload of medals um the companion of the order of australia the george medal officer of the legion of honor of france the Croix de guerre in france the medal de la resistance in france the medal of freedom from the united states and the rsa badge in gold from new zealand i have a few more quotes here here are a handful more because she's just too golden to not share these she did remarry and after her second husband passed away she sold all of her medals, saying, quote, there is no point in keeping them. I'll probably go to hell and they'll melt anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I love her. Um, she also said, when one remembers all of the events in the 1930s, which led to World War II and to the victory, which we were promised would bring peace and make the world a better place to live in, one can only wonder if it was all worthwhile. We have only to look around us and see that the same thing is happening all over again. And an old French saying can best express my sentiments. Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. What goes around, comes around. Hmm. She also said, In earlier history, when groups of people declared war on each other, the leaders always led their troops into battle. It is a great pity we do not have the same system today. Perhaps our politicians would think twice before they gambled with the lives of their people. Yeah. In her grandmotherly state in her 90s, I think she was in her 90s when she said this, it sounds awful to say, but I had a wonderful war. <laughs> okay. No, you so say much. that. My my grandfather's best friends, um, Roland and Al, and Roll Al survived the camps. Oh but wow. Roland, um, he didn't know Al during the time. He he was just a young boy who had a very dramatic sounding last name. And I was like, Well, what was the war like for you? And he goes, Oh, it was it was fun. Like, you know, we had like we were put on the same trains that she was, but ours were great. Like we were, you know, just <laughs> escorted to the other side. And because my dad's position or whatever, he, the son wasn't like pushed into the war or drafted or anything like he was protected. So he had a great time. He goes, it was great seeing all of the big machines and all the crazy stuff. And I wasn't <laughs> on the front lines. Like I was super insulated life. and it's like, wow. And it's so 
fascinating to know that like there are people who can look at that and go yeah it was it was fun for me yeah i had a blast she she loved every minute of it evidently <laughs> um Henri tarvade the name that i've been mispronouncing the entire time i love this so much said quote she is the most feminine woman i know but when the fighting starts then she is like five men dang i love this woman so much and the craziest thing to me to think of all this whole story she was alive until after both my children were born like there are interviews of her much later in life like um they said when when she when did she die again in 2011 in august of 2011 okay she um when she went she so she died in london when she went back to london she positioned herself in this hotel that she had like a years and years rapport with and that's where she planned to die she just loved the place so much the concierge like built her a little corner in the bar so she could have her gin and tonic and when she came down for a gin and tonic you best not be in her seat <laughs> right um towards the end our king now but the prince of wales then learned of her and he came to meet her and was just so actually i think she was brought to buckingham palace he was so beside himself with her actions that a portion of the prince's trust footed the bill for the rest of her life wow yeah he was just like whoa this woman (laughs) and she is quoted as saying things like oh well you wouldn't believe it now but back then i was a looker She knew what was up. And if she is not the most badass woman I've ever heard of, I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what is. I think she tops Eileen Griffin. She's she's pretty magnificent, but the more I think about it, like were they just built different back then? No, I don't think they were built different. <laughs> I think honestly, like we have the same stock. We just sure, don't yes. have an active war. We don't have anything to do with it, I think. Right. <laughs> like so now we're just using it to get better cuts of meat at Costco and you know turning around <laughs> and exploiting the PTA that's that's really what we're doing looking good while we do it i guess like she is just something else so i would like to take this time to thank you for giving me the time i needed to work her story out because there was so much more i could have told you <laughs> but i mean I was like this was point. worth it uh amazing i had a wonderful war like i love her the end safety she's been good there are several movies that um are based on her one source said that the uh the film in glorious bastards was loosely based on uh, her unit's stories interesting she did say the only good Nazi is a dead Nazi. The Nazis. deader, the better. And all I could think of is, we're in the business of killing Nazis. Business is good. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I read that comment from her, that was the first thought I thought. And then like the next day, I listened to another podcast on her, and I was like, oh my god, big glorious bastards. <laughs> you know, so I can't remember his last name when they try to make him Italian, Brad Pitt's character Italian. And the reason why I can't remember it is because there is a pizza place not too far from our house called Bornalami's. 
And when my husband goes, what is the name of it again? I go, Bordalami. <laughs> Nazis. We in the business of killing Nazis. Business is good. Alice <laughs> loved her so much. And it like, there's footage of her. If you get a chance to just like YouTube her, there's footage of her at interviews. There's footage of her meeting young soldiers and sailors and like expressing her genuine gratitude for their existence. And she is just this sweet looking maternal old grandmother wearing her scarves. And then you like, you read her story and you're like, I'm sorry, what? I was not expecting this from you. Pardon? You basically just... <laughs> picnic bastic your way 300 miles across my brain and, and infiltrated my my life my heart you're you're here yes ma'am i bend the knee you're the queen um magnificent <laughs> all the while was doing it in her glorious australian accent except for when she spoke french she did not have an accent at all i bet that was beaten out of her i think it was part of well because she loved france so much and like she just fit in so well i think that that was part of why the germans couldn't find her because they thought they were looking for a french woman they didn't realize they were looking for an australian transplant yeah that makes sense so there's my story well that's good and i have a dog that is both wanting to go outside but also trying to exploit me for attention since i have the door shut so it might be time for me to, to, to call this. That's fabulous. I have to go finish dinner, which I started hours ago. Well, look at you. I know I, I was on top of it because we've been, we started watching the Dungeons and Dragons movie last night and I want to finish it tonight. So I was like, where's, I where is it on? I think we, I think we're watching it on Paramount Plus. Okay. I think, but you might, I think I, I just told Ian I want to watch this and I think it's on this and he found it last night. All right. I can I can search it. I don't know what we're what we're doing. It's like the uh, this is all I'm going to say. We're only an hour into it, but it's like the most high dollar B-rated movie I've ever seen and I love every minute of it. You know, there's something to be said about a good B-rated film. That this is a gem. <laughs> well, if you have enjoyed hanging out with us and you're thinking Good grief. I need to know more about whatever crazy experience these women are are reading about on their own lives. And um, maybe you've got your own best rated B film that we aren't talking about. Hit us up. I mean, first for the podcast bit, you know, rate, review, subscribe, make sure that other people that are like-minded, more like you, find us. We like them. We like them. Our future friends. Indeed. You're our current friend. There's more. I mean, there's more friend to go around. This isn't pie. We can, we can all we can share. We can all be friends. Yeah. Um, Except and, for you, Dave. You know, honestly, <laughs> we've been meaning to talk to you for a while. This just isn't working out anymore. Um, we're not sorry. Um, yeah. Kick rocks. Peace out, Dave. Bye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, feel free to, to, email us we're at unhinged history pod at gmail.com and yeah on that note goodbye bye <laughs> sorry dave <laughs>